We're happy to celebrate Pride Month, but for us, Pride Month is every month. Hi, welcome to Love Mia Vita podcast, the podcast to women for women. I'm Jerry DiPiano, women's healthcare advocate and founder of Fem Pharma. I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Saltman, physician, researcher, the thinker, and medical director. Thanks, Jerry. I'm really proud to be a part of Fem Pharma's commitment to keeping women healthy and safe and this series of podcasts. Together, we're providing solutions for women who care about living their best lives at any age. As trailblazers, we aim to break down the myths and provide the truths about everything women want and care about. Imagine that. We asked women what they want, and we're about to deliver it. By the way, we hope to entertain you, and that's no BS. Over the coming months, we'll be speaking with experts about topics that matter, mental and physical well-being, and what more could be done. We will push our experts to give you answers that are real. So send us your questions, and here's to loving our lives. Hi, this is Jerry DiPiano, and this afternoon our podcast will be featuring Dr. Deborah Saltman um, in celebration of Pride Month. Yes, it's a great month and it's great to celebrate with you and and tell you a bit about about my story and uh, a little bit about how I came out and how working with with, uh, Femme Farm has been a really great adventure for me and a really good place to work as part of the LGBTQI community. Well, as you know, Deb, we are strong supporters of the LGBTQI community and we have invested in doing activities with the community in the past and we look forward to continuing our involvement and engagement with the community and and providing products and services that are supportive to all persons. But perhaps you could share with us a bit about your story and how how your journey has been going and then we can offer some tips to all of our friends in the community to how we can help at Femme Pharma. Sure, uh, gladly. Um, I came out in my 20s, which is these days pretty late to come out. Um, I cisgender identify as a female and uh, I'm a lesbian and it was tricky coming out. I had a tough time in the hospital. I was um, not offered jobs, several hospitals. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with my future. Um, and then I fell in love with a woman and it was just like the movies. I knew that was the future for me, as difficult as it might be. And in those days, um, you didn't mention that you might have fallen in love with a woman and if you did, uh, you certainly didn't call yourself a dyke because I remember my family saying when I called myself a dyke, which I did because I was into reclaiming the language, um, they thought it meant I identified as the male partner in a relationship, like a, a dyke was a bull dyke and the femme was the other part, so they had this kind of belief that we had role identification in our relationships, which some couples do, but we, we didn't. But uh, I was very fortunate in that uh, I had a good circle of friends and I had some very strong and supportive early relationships with women uh, and a community. I was part of the lesbian cultural extravaganza and did a very um, 
poor rendition of Bit Middler, but it seemed to go down well with the LGBT. Then it was just the, then it was the lesbian community, and it was the lesbian and gay, and then it became the lesbian bisexual, and you know we got more more letters, and we became more inclusive, which was great. I'm Jewish, and we started a group called Stars of David came out, and we marched in Mardi Gras in Australia. Uh, I was one of the first dykes on bikes and also one of the first Hooters on scooters, which was very interesting. That was a mixed group of gay guys and girls. So Hooters on scooters and dykes on bikes. And I did a lot of marshalling as a doctor at the Mardi Gras in Australia, and I'm really sad that lots of people from the US couldn't go to Mardi Gras in Australia this year, and uh, I'm sure they'll want to go in future years. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to have a out gay male professor as my boss and he assisted me to become the first woman and out lesbian professor of family practice and public health in Australia. And with that I was given what is the equivalent of a damehood from the Australian government from the Queen uh, for my services to women's health and to, uh, to medical education and general practice. So all in all it was a great career and then I got bored and I went to London in search of new and interesting opportunities. And then I got bored again and came to the US. And luckily on the way, I met Jerry DiPiano and we hit it off, which was absolutely amazing. And I was so excited because before that, it was very, very difficult finding something simpatico to do in the US. And I really did want to come work here. And, and that was a couple of years ago. And the happy story continues. But after that, I got uh, I got married in the U.S. and Ben Farmer gave me a wonderful, I think it's still called a hen's party if you're a lesbian, but it, I think that was a hen's party. We did. And uh, and that's my future here, and I'm really pleased to be part of uh, part of an organisation that looks at at the moment we're going to do lots of other things I know and, and watch this space, some beautiful product lines coming ahead, but. At the moment, I'm really excited about mucosal moisturisers. I know it sounds weird, but believe it or not, it's a gay and lesbian thing. We use our mucosas a lot. We use a lot of our mucosas, and nobody seems to talk about our mucosas. For me, they want to talk about the menopause, because I am of age, and I've written a couple of books about it. And for a lot of gay males, they don't want to talk about anoreceptive sex and using basically moisturisers to keep the anoreceptive sex working well and enjoyment, that's one of the things. Another thing is in the trans communities, there's a lot of mucosal change there and helping to modify it and helping to keep our trans communities uh, healthy, particularly in the, in the private regions, in the perineal area. Nobody likes talking about that and I know we've had some issues about being able to talk about that on social media. It's, it's very curious to me that um, we have, through our research, learned that members of the LGBTQ community are often not taken seriously by their medical practitioners. And when we think about uh, disparities in the provision of health care, we've also learned that oftentimes when members of the, the LGBTQI community will visit a physician, that um, they either won't get proper care or physicians are completely perplexed as to how to approach it. As a lesbian woman, have you personally encountered any of this in the community? Obviously, you did professionally 
in your mm -hmm. as a career professional, as a physician, and a PhD. But as a patient, have you encountered this, and and can you provide any advice to members of the community? Sure. I mean, one of the big places we encounter it, particularly as lesbians, is with pap smears or cervical smears, and how often lesbians should have them. And you know, a lot of lesbians have had relationships at some stage with men and may have not been vaccinated against the HPV virus, so that's important. And a lot of women ask me, what, what did you do and how often did you have pap smears? And I actually had cervical intraepithelial neoplasia because I didn't have regular pap smears, even though I'd had relationships with men and women, uh, because I thought I didn't need them. And that's until my dermatologist brother-in-law said that he had seen surveys of hands of gynaecologists and a high percentage of them had papilloma wart virus on their hands as did dermatologists and it's very pervasive. So I say to all women irrespective of your sexual partner please get regular pap smears if you're of the age still and you're young and you're listening to this hopefully some are get vaccinated vaccines are pretty important these days so pap smears are a big one the other thing that, uh, that comes about is particularly breast cancer and the relation of that to lesbians who may not have had children. As you know, there's a debate about whether breast cancer is less likely in people who haven't used the oral contraceptive or whether the period of having early children, uh, you know, the stopping of the menstrual cycle for nine odd months actually is protective against breast cancer. So that's another area that women aren't particularly lesbians aren't taken seriously in terms of that kind of care. I think there's a whole lot of issues in relation to same-sex couples with children, and it's not just lesbians. It's gay men who choose to have children, and the kind of spectre might be. I have two very good friends who have two gay male friends who have three female children, and what the community thinks about that, whether men can bring up women, but apparently women can bring up men, so I don't see why the obverse isn't true. So that's another issue in terms of child rearing and childcare, who stays at home, the children. So there's a range of issues. Of course, the other range of issue is um, the traditional one where uh, the LGBTQI community is viewed as either sexual or mad. We are some of our, our pleasure organs or our sexual organs and a brain that is clearly not seeing right. And that's been a big problem particularly with HIV and depression for a lot of uh, gay men and particularly even now, even with PrEP uh, or if you're living with HIV, it's still an issue, a big issue. I mean, it's only recently that the diagnostic um, uh, statistical methods or DSM for psychological diseases has taken homosexuality out of it and uh, I don't know what uh, the trans community is doing but hopefully it will never make it in there. Hopefully we've, um, we're progressing to the point where we recognize and respect all people and all forms of love um, among persons. Absolutely. And as, a, um, as a, a physician and a practitioner of medicine, um, I know that you did some volunteer work with a, a local organization. I won't mention the name of the organization, but um, you were uh, very engaged in providing healthcare services as a physician to members of the LGBTQI community. What sorts of things um, did you uncover that were new to you when you worked in the community that you perhaps wish you knew? Um, 
And again, we're speaking broadly, not solely about women. Mm -hmm. um, so perhaps you could shed a little light on that for our listeners. Sure. Um, because it was a designated LGBTQI community health centre, our number one clientele were people in that community. And a lot of them used the health centre only for issues relating to their designated gender um, comfortability, not even assignment, but comfortability. And I think that's pretty sad for continuing care. For example, if I take the blood pressure from someone and I'd see they were on blood pressure medications, I wouldn't be dealing with that. That would be some other doctor. And I wondered if the other doctor knew about what I was doing. I wondered if the other doctor knew that they were on PrEP or knew that they were on HIV medication or knew that they'd had hep C or knew whatever they needed to know about or had partner violence problems. I just wonder if they didn't get the holistic care because they couldn't come out to their regular doctor. And, you know, Jerry, I know this is a talk for pride, but it's a talk for all the people we talk to because we both know that lots of people who use our products say to us, I have no clinician in my area I can talk to. My gynaecologist retired, he was male, he didn't understand the problems I had. And so we know that this issue of holistic care is troublesome and particularly so for the, uh, the LGBTQIA and so uh, a few more letters and apologies for stopping there. One of the reasons I stopped there is because I never want to forget the L. I have to be pride. It's pride. I'm very pleased and proud to be a lesbian and pleased and proud to be married to my wife. So what you share is um, about the continuity of care. It shouldn't surprise anyone. Anyone who has had a diagnosis of anything understands that once you get the initial diagnosis and you get the treatment, it's really how do you live with this? How do you live with whatever that diagnosis is? And oftentimes we're dropped out of the system. And more challenging um, for individuals who are in the LGBTQI, and I apologize for missing the remaining letters, um, but this is this has really become uh, quite a problem and the, obviously a cause for some concern and, and for us to, during Pride Month, insist that we get better coordination of care. So thinking about what we can do as, um, as health, a healthcare company for persons um, who have vaginas and vulvas in particular, but, um, but who do care about the health of all persons. What are some suggestions that um, you would provide for our listening audience um, as it pertains to where we can be of support? What can Fem Pharma do uh, to provide some support? Well, think more broadly is the most important thing and be most inclusive as we can. And all of us have our biases and all of us have our problems with that. But if we can just broaden our avenues a little bit and think more broadly about it, and I think younger people are doing that much better than my generation do. They're much more accepting of the broader basis of, of gender and sexuality and fluidity. That's one of the things. The second thing is the transgender community needs our support. In I'm a clinician, and irrespective of what people think about transgender, transgender males and females are taking hormones, and we have very little experience long-term how those hormones might affect them. We know already there's a lot of experience with how the oral contraceptive affects women. So you can only imagine there are issues as well about long-term estrogen and testosterone use amongst 
people who that's not endogenous in. The second thing is this huge disparity where trans females can get oestrogen cheaply and trans males can't get testosterone cheaply. They have to have it authorised. There's a huge gender imbalance there and that's something the community needs to look at. Whatever our belief about the communities, I happen to support the transgender communities. I'm not transgender, but I happen to support their right to have appropriate health care and for us to support the choices they make. And as a, um, as a member of the community, what, what sorts of advice would you share um, in terms of selecting um, an appropriate physician or nurse practitioner so that you do get the best coordination of care and that you do have someone that is um, experienced as to some of the issues that you may, unique issues that you may be facing? How would you approach selecting a professional? Because let's face it, we talk about we talk about gynecologists a lot here at Femme Pharma, and we talk about growing up with your gynecologist. So if you're working with an individual that is insensitive to your needs, it's probably time to move on. So as you progress, whether it's through your early reproductive years into perimenopause and menopause, you need to be sure that your physician understands you, asks the appropriate questions, etc. And for members of the LGBTQI community, what advice would you offer with respect to selecting a professional so you get the best possible care? Well, it's a really important question, Jerry. Really important. And one of the first things to understand is selecting a physician or any healthcare person, I say, is more significant but not different from buying a pair of shoes. You might buy a size nine pair of shoes, they don't all fit. Some will give you blisters, some won't, some will walk for the long term, some will only last a season. So the same sort of thing is you need to match your needs to that of your physician. Now you may not be able to do that in the beginning because most of us don't go for a preventive check first. We usually go, oops, something's wrong, I need to see something immediately. So everything gets dealt with urgent and seriously. And if you stay in urgent and serious mode with seeing your physician, you will never understand how to build a long-term relationship. You have to build a relationship that has both urgent and non-urgent and serious and non-serious components. You have to build your relationship. And if it needs some help, like marriage guidance counselling, you need to get it. But sometimes you have to move on. And therefore, there's lots of good agencies amongst the LGBT community to discuss clinicians with, to discuss where you might move on or who you can talk to about what your needs. It's a sophisticated community. We're all pretty knowing what we are. Pretty tricky devolving that in the community, but that's kind of what we need to do and working and involving the community in that. So that's the first thing. Lots of physicians say they're gay friendly or lesbian friendly. It's very in to say that because we're a, a, an eligible population for the community and, and, and becoming more and more accepted after HIV. But you really need to test whether they are the right fit for you. Because as I said, saying you're a lesbian can mean so many different things. Saying you're a gay male, there is such a trajectory of different styles. So check it out, see if they fit you might not be able to decide on the first consultation. As I said, if you're urgent or serious, you, all you want to do is get rid of your pain or your treatment, find a diagnosis. It might not come for some time. 
even if they do preventive screens, it might not come. And so you need to say, hey, I want to take some time to discuss with you my issues and whether we both feel you're the right person to deal with it. Quite a lot of physicians say, I'm okay to deal with everything except issues about your sex. Well, that might be alright for you, but it might be alright because lots of the medications we all take have an effect on the whole body, not just on our sex organs. They're systemically administered, so why wouldn't they have the impact on your entire body? Exactly. And, and you know, our history travels with us and lots of people have got history and of different activities when they were younger and they, they carry with us. So it's important to make the relationship with your physician overt or open it out, call it open it out, and see, have a look at it. Now, if your physician's not able to do that, but you are, you've got a mismatch. If your physician is able to do that and you're not with that particular physician, you also have a mismatch. It's not always our fault as patients or our fault as doctors. There may not be the chemistry in the relationship. Now, I know a lot of people who are listening to this aren't located in big cities where they can shop around. They're in small towns, they're isolated, and they have much more difficulty in finding a physician who can work with them because there's a lot of regional shortage of physicians, and I understand that. But telehealth has helped that, and lots of physicians are now providing telehealth services. It's up to people in those communities to say, do not stop telehealth services once the pandemic has settled. This is an essential service for me. I need to be able to connect to a physician. Having said that, I've never seen a flat screen examine me. So you still <laughs> need somewhere, someone to examine you because the flat screen can't do it. And I know I've seen a lot of patients trying to show me things on the screen, but it's very flat and the colour's not right and the sound quality isn't good. So there, there, nothing beats a physical examination. And it's often, it's, it may often be a little bit embarrassing, um, if not off-putting, to expose your private parts on a screen uh, where you're not quite certain about the person on the other side of the screen. So it Absolutely. does not replace it, particularly if you have something going on in your reproductive organs, your, gen your genitals. Um, you, you probably do need to go in and see someone in person and have that evaluated. Well, you see, that's where you do the kind of like... Uh, how to have me, you know, the millionaire program, you say phone a friend. So any physician that you might want to work with on telehealth, you need to upfront say with them, hey, do you know any colleagues within my travel distance who can do a physical exam and do the investigations that you need done for me and who will work with me in concert and we can work in a partnership to get your best health care? That's the other way to look at it. You have to be quite assertive. It's it's tricky, Jerry. I mean I think that the um the, th the things that you shared with me just now and now and obviously with our listening audience is really important. It comes right down to the respect. So it's one thing to say I'm a supporter of LGBTQI and I'm a physician that's cool and I, you know, and I understand the issues that are facing the community. It's another thing to walk that walk and to behave in a way that demonstrates that you care, that you're respectful and that you're willing and open to answering questions that your patient, whomever it is that's sitting across from you, is, is asking, but to also be a little bit more forward-thinking and, and inquire about potential problems and issues 
that may not be obvious but might be unique to persons in, in the community that could be important to maintaining their longevity. Absolutely, and, and the same sort of thing happens in social media. I always see these people, whether it's Autistic Month or Pride Month or Day of Breast Cancer, they change their little picture to support that. I usually, if they're my friends, I say, I want to see you do that in November. I want to see you do that next March. Why don't you do it randomly rather in the month? Why don't you have calendarise that you're going to do breast awareness in January or Pride in October? Pride well, Month should be every month. We're happy to celebrate Pride Month, but for us, Pride Month is every month. Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it, Jerry? I don't need to wear a Pride badge. If anyone asks me, do you mind talking about being a lesbian? I don't mind at all. I'm very proud every day of the year, every month of the year, about my sexuality and about my gender identification and about how I connect with all my communities. That's what makes us open and inclusive. So with respect to Femme Pharma, we have products that we've made um, for individuals who identify as women, but our products are generally uh, made with, with ingredients that are generally regarded as safe and they can be used on mucosal surfaces. And I know earlier in our conversation, we talked about um, persons that are um, having sex, maybe not having sex, but still need to protect those mucosal surfaces. And, and I, I believe that that message is a message that is broader than just um, those who identify as being female. Absolutely, and for any anoreceptive sex, the anus is also a mucosal surface and is subject for anoreceptive sex to some kind of penetration, so it needs protection too. So it's important to take care of all mucosal surfaces. What well, we know about the eye, we know about the nose, we know about the mouth, we know about the vulva, we know about the vagina, and we should also know about the anus. It's important to look after it. And the trouble is if we don't start mentioning all the areas of mucosa, things can go wrong and then they're hard to fix up. And you and I know that, Jerry. That's part of what FemFarm is on about, Amir Vita. It's about saying, hey, we want to try to do things early, help people early, make sure things don't progress and understand all the mucosal services. And after all, hyaluronic acid, which is the main ingredient of our product, is in lots of cells in the mucosa. It's supposed to keep the cells healthy. However, having said that, it's pretty important to remember the uniqueness of our product. I mean, less is more. It's such a viscous product. And it's so, so good at what it does. It only needs a little bit. You know how I used to remember people saying, slip, slap, slop with sunscreen, you know, it's summer weather coming on. Like, put a lot on. The same with that. It's not, more is actually not better. The right amount is the amount that just covers the surfaces, just covers the surfaces. The right strategy is doing it regularly, just like you brush it. When we talk about mucosal surfaces, um, and mu as you indicated, um, we all have mucosal surfaces. However, you know, male, female, trans, lesbian, gay, bisexual, we all have mucosal surfaces, and they are natural barriers to infection. And we're, they're constantly exposed to bacteria and viruses. They're potential sites for entry of microorganisms. So keeping those surfaces intact is really important. Overdoing it is also not what we recommend, and that's why we 
developed our products with the lowest, we call the lowest effective product for symptom relief. You need to put a small amount of material on because it's highly concentrated and very effective. And we make them with all pharmaceutical grade ingredients according to good manufacturing practices. So we have thought about how to bring products into the market that are safe, relatively safe, effective for all persons. And especially um, at Fem Pharma, we do focus on women and women's health, but we care about everyone. And I know a lot of people in summer like to bleach and, 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 and have waxing and that sort of stuff. The area is very sensitive and you need to prepare it for that sort of stuff. I tell people that if you're going to get a bikini wax, or you're going to get a Brazilian, or you're going to get an anal bleaching, or you're going to do any of those things, before you even think about doing that, for two weeks, moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. Get your tissues in the best way to get that. The treatment always has some kind of negative effect on your skin, so you want to prepare it the best. And also, expect a recuperative period. I mean, lots of us know that when we have a Brazilian, some of the hair follicles get a little bit red or sore. So remember, give it a week or so to rest and then start moisturising again. Make sure that the area is looked after. Good advice. It's very good advice. So at Femme Pharma, um, our many years of experience um, with developing products that are safe, efficacious that have been uh, put through their paces with the FDA. Our personal lubricant and moisturizer is FDA cleared. We invested a time and resources to bring that product into conformity with FDA regulations. Um, our Satisfem product, uh, which is um, a, a vulvar um, moisturizer, or I should say a mucosal surface moisturizer, it contains the same ingredients and made with ingredients that are pharmaceutical grade um, under GMP manufacturing. And you should look for GMP whenever you are examining a new product to use because that means that it was the facility has been up to uh, the FDA standards for rigor in their manufacturing processes. That is really important. We do not make products in our kitchen or garage. That's right, and it's not faddest to use a, natu a naturally occurring substance like hyaluronic acid because it, is, it does form a barrier, which is important, it, and it doesn't need much. Deb, as always, it's a pleasure having you and I hosting this podcast. Yep. Today you were my guest on the podcast. Indeed. Normally Dr. Saltman is my co-host yep. for the Love Mia Vita podcast. But today we wanted to celebrate Pride, and um, we are showcasing Dr. Saltman, who has been a pioneer. As you heard, she came out um, a number of years ago. Just a few. Before there was widespread acceptance of persons uh, in the community. And so we, we consider her a trailblazer, but she is also our, uh, our lovely and uh, thoughtful and intelligent medical director and we are so proud of you Deb and we want to celebrate Pride Month with you uh, now and throughout the year and happy Pride with everyone and here's to loving our lives <laughs>